Hey friend, thanks so much for meeting me here at Frothy Monkey in beautiful downtown Franklin, Tennessee. It's a great place to get a good cup of joe and share together in some good conversation. Anyway, be looking at the menu. I know you're new here. Decide what you want. Text it to me. I'm going to go ahead and get in line and place our order. Hey, you're listening to Guat.Rocks, God, the world, and other things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, always advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. The title of this podcast series is Plain Revelation. This is episode 86, Jesus as Profanity. Additional thoughts on Revelation chapter 1. Stay with me on the connection. I can't say that this will be a pattern to follow up each chapter focused on the book of Revelation with additional thoughts, but some things came to my mind this morning that I think need to be shared. First, even though I've studied the book of Revelation in depth, I preached the entire book through in series, including intense translation work from the Greek to the English language, it occurred to me that I had never asked the question, why was the book addressed to just the seven churches in Asia? By the time of John's writing, there were already many other additional churches. I have a hyperlink in the show notes for a good explanation. It's found at BibleStudyTools.com, but I want to give you just a brief summary of the points here now. First, the city's geographical distribution facilitated communication by letter along the established trade routes between the cities. Ephesus was the messenger's natural place of entry to the mainland from the island of Patmos. It was also the capital city, and the other cities If you look it up on a map, they lay in sequence on a circular route round its inner territories. Second point of summary, all the seven cities stand on the great circular road that bound together the most populous, wealthy, and influential part of the province. Planted at these seven centers, the apocalypse would spread through their neighborhoods and from there to the rest of the province. I think it's important to note that these were cities of prominence. That's important in the way that God works his distribution. Number three, the symbolic meaning of seven indicates completeness or perfection. It appears to be a deliberate choice, like the many other occurrences of seven in the book of Revelation, to signify that these seven churches typify all churches in every age, and I think that's an absolutely accurate assessment. It wasn't just directed to the seven churches of Asia in John's time, but these seven churches of Asia represent the message to the churches in every age. This third point highlights the matrix through which Jesus is viewing his church. The seven points of critical analysis are not exhaustive of all offenses against Christ a local church may be guilty of committing, but you now are put on notice of seven key fundamental issues that Jesus reveals are non-negotiables for obedience. Ignoring the admonitions to come in the next chapter that we will cover guarantees loss of Christ's power and influence as seen as the threat to remove that church's lampstand, its light, its illumination. And we'll say more about that in podcasts to come. A personal encouragement, we can draw from this that God does everything according to what we would label as common sense type action. In this, we see the conservation of time, talking about the distribution of this letter. We see the conservation of human resources, the conservation of materials list, which as I said in the last podcast, writing implements and and parchments and papers were expensive to come by. So a conservation of materials list for accomplishment of the desired goal, which was to communicate his word to the churches, and also a conservation of distance, ease of access, 
and scope of influence and power. God had John send a letter to the capital city, then six additional city centers of that region's commerce and human life, who were on the superhighway of that time, courtesy of the Roman government. The Romans were magnificent road builders, and these key cities were all connected by a really well-built, well-constructed road, which made access possible. Thought number two. Watching a rerun of a past successful TV series last night, one of the characters exclaimed in a profane way to the other character, Jesus. That one word went all through me. In light of our woke culture and the track you down and destroy your profession and livelihood for one word misspoke according to the hunter's purview, I thought to myself, can you imagine if that same TV series, even in its now completed rerun status, was to air that same show with the name of Allah or Muhammad used in a profane exclamatory use? The media and the Muslims would be seeking to destroy the ones guilty of this derogatory and profane use of their religious leader's name and God. You may remember the firestorm of response the French publication Charlie Hebdo invoked with its satirical attacks as they saw it. Their satirical attacks displayed in its published cartoons of Mohammed in 2012, forcing France to temporarily close embassies and schools in more than 20 countries amid fears of reprisals. Its offices had been firebombed in November of 2011 after publishing a previous character of Mohammed on its cover. The violent reaction by the people who claimed ties to Islam was wrong, but the fact that the French publication incensed the Muslim population is easy to understand. In other words, I'm not advocating violence. That's not the point of this, this injecture here. Please follow me in my train of thought. If you personally witnessed a publication, website, or media outlet publish a derogatory photo, news report, a com- or a commentary of someone you love and care deeply about, there would be outrage on your part, followed by letters, media news releases, lawsuits, and every form of defense against the attack. Yet, the Christians sit back silently with no outcry and allow the show producers, writers, and actors go unchallenged when the one they worship as both Savior and Lord is spoken of in such vain, inflammatory, and profane ways. One has to wonder, when all words now are on the table and accessible for use to express attitudes of disgust, hate, and profanity, why? Why? Why is there ever a need to draw in the name of any person that a group of people on the planet deem as holy or deity? It's not just careless, it's intentional. I say this with with good reason because never, never have I ever heard any other religious leader of one considered as deity used in an exclamatory, derogatory fashion, ever. Can you imagine on a television show if someone was to say, oh, Martin Luther King Jr.? Can you imagine the outrage? Never, never, ever have I heard of any other religious leader or one considered as deity used in an exclamatory, derogatory fashion ever, except Jesus. So then my thoughts convert back to me. Do I act, file a protest with the producer of this content? If so, where does it stop? I really thought about it. Now stay with me. This ties right back into the chapter, first chapter of Revelation. I really thought about it. For sure, we need to reevaluate what we watch and give our time to. There needs to be some changes made. But we are called to act, not to sit back and spectate. 
My answer finally came back to what we just covered in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. The vision of the resurrected, glorified Savior and Lord Jesus Christ says that those who want to use his name as cursing are going to pay a heavy price on the day of their evaluation before the throne of God. Just because a person renders Jesus' name as meaningless or use of it in a derogatory fashion as inconsequential does not mean that their action is meaningless and inconsequential. Did you hear that? That just because a person renders Jesus' name as meaningless or use it in a derogatory fashion as inconsequential does not mean that their action is meaningless and inconsequential. So the question is, why does God put up with such insolent and arrogant discard for his deity and right to be worshipped rather than abused? My devotional reading just this morning, and this is really what provoked all of this, brought it all together and emphasized something that needs to hug the core, listen to this, that needs to hug the core of all we look at in the book of Revelation. It's fundamental. Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century British pastor that I quote often, wrote in his daily devotion for the evening of February 22nd, focused on Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, that's an Old Testament prophet called Nahum, the book Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3, that reads, here's what he said, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Spurgeon goes on to say, the Lord is slow to anger. When mercy comes into the world, she drives winged steeds. The axles of her chariot wheels are red hot with speed. But when wrath goes forward, it toils on with tardy footsteps. Tardy footsteps. For God takes no pleasure in the sinner's death. The wages of sin is death, people, for the sin that an individual commits that is not covered under the blood-bought grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, it brings forth death. That is a given. That is a fact. But God takes no pleasure in the sinner's death. God's rod of mercy, Spurgeon goes on to say, is ever in his hand outstretched. His sword of justice is in its scabbard, its covering, its sheath, held down by that pierced hand of love which bled for the sins of men. Spurgeon goes on to say, the Lord is slow to anger because he is great in power. Did you hear that? Great in power, not weak in power. What a great insight by Spurgeon. God is holding back his wrath and anger toward those who consider the name of his only begotten son useful as profanity because he is great in power. He goes on to write, he is genuinely great in power who has power over himself. When God's power restrains himself, then it is power indeed. The power that binds omnipotence is omnipotence surpassed. My friends, that is a profound statement. When God's power restrains himself, then it is power indeed. The power that binds omnipotence is omnipotence surpassed. So why is the sight of Jesus that takes the stage in the end of days the one who glows like a welder's torch in brilliant holy light, which judges all darkness, being withheld now. Because you and I are witnessing omnipotence, that means unlimited power, surpassed. Spurgeon goes on to write, A man who has a strong mind can bear to be insulted long and only resents the wrong when a sense of right demands his action. The weak mind is irritated at a little. The strong mind bears it like a rock which moves not though a thousand breaking shoreline waves crash upon it and cast their pitiful malice in spray upon its summit. God marks his enemies. 
Friend, what another profound statement. God marks his enemies, and yet he does not rouse himself, but holds in his anger. If he were less divine than he is, he would long since have sent forth the whole of his thunders and emptied the magazines of heaven. He would long since have blasted the earth with the wondrous fires of its lower regions, talking about the fires of judgment, and man would have been utterly destroyed. But the greatness of his power brings mercy. Friend, this overarching principle in the book of Revelation needs to completely invade your mind so that when we come to the passages that talk about the terrible judgment of the Lord that is going to be exacted against his creation, you will remember that it is judgment finally dealt out, but after thousands and thousands of years of withholding. But the greatness of his power brings mercy. Right now, the entire world is under his restrained wrath that is bringing us mercy. God's personal restraint of righteous judgment against the sin of fallen people should provoke us to run to the battle for people's souls through his ever-present strength of his great power, which brings us mercy. Peter, in his book, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he reminds us that God is extending his patience with us because he does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. God has given us full disclosure of the events that comprise the end of the age out of compassion for all people. His return to earth to right the wrongs done by the humans he created is closer now than the day that John first recorded these visions. Dear friend, if by humble faith you look to Jesus for your salvation, then you have every reason to rejoice today and to not be afraid of God's power, for he who is great in power is your father and friend. And with that, my friend, I bid you peace.